0: March 2021 marks the 10 year publication anniversary of Colin Thubron's To a Mountain in Tibet, a book that chronicles the author's high altitude pilgrimage around Mount Kailash, a mountain that is sacred to Hindus, Buddhists, and Bonpos. Colin joins me to talk about his book, What Makes Good Travel Writing, and the Recent Loss of His Friend, Jan Morris. This interview was originally recorded in December of 2020. So now, here is Colin Thuburong. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So 2021 marks the 10-year publication anniversary of To a Mountain in Tibet, a book that documents your overland journey from Nepal and into Tibet, where you walk around the sacred Mount Kailash, uh, sometimes pronounced as Kailas, I think. Uh, so what, what is so special about Mount Kailash? Uh,
1: it's special to both Hindus and Buddhists. Um, I think the strangeness of it is that it's separated from the rest of the Himalaya mountains and stands alone, rather as if it's been put there by a god And from a very early time, it was an object of veneration quite early, even to the the earliest Tibetan peoples in religion, the Bon. So it's partly it's geographical isolation that makes it extraordinary. And um, at the foot of it is this lake, this great Lake Manasarava, two lakes really, which have also become the subject of legend. And uh, it's also the place where four of the great rivers of India, um, of the uh, sub- subcontinent, have their source, which is very strange. I mean, in Hindu scripture, this was predicted, um, that um, the great rivers would rise from the source of the, this holy mountain. So the Indus, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra and the Sutlej all lies um, on the slopes of Kailash.
0: And it's a very striking mountain to see if you see an image of it. It's just a striking kind of almost a perfect pyramid sticking out of the earth with this beautiful kind of gash running down the sides. A a very striking image um, to behold.
1: uh, Yeah, it looks, uh, the the north face in particular is almost 5,000 feet sheer sort of sheet of ice. It also gives the illusion of being a stairway, which is very odd. Um, it goes up in shelves at one point. The pyramid is an illusion entirely because um, on one there's one part of it which is much less steep than the other. But what pilgrims first see coming from the south, Hindu pilgrims, is what appears to be a very perfectly shaped and mystical mountain.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned a stairway, and what popped into my mind is stairway to heaven. And I guess the the re- religious associations with this mountain, as you'd you'd referred uh, as as you referred to with the Hindus and the Buddhists, um, this is a particularly sacred mountain to Hindus, who I believe um, th- uh, revere it as a home place for Lord Shiva and According to some iconography of Shiva, you sometimes see like a river coming, uh, coming from him, um, and the, the illusion of kind of the rivers coming from the source. Did you, on your quest around the mountain, see a lot of Hindu or Buddhist pilgrims?
1: Yes, there were quite a few. Um, the Buddhists were mostly Tibetans um, mm. that were used to that altitude, and you were getting up almost to nineteen thousand feet, and they would circle the mountain um, very fast. Um, The Hindus, um, it was very different, many of them were lowland Hindus from India, come now on pilgrimage and often um, not prepared at all for this sort of tough climbing and certainly not for this altitude. A lot of them were coming from lowland cities like Chennai, Madras, Bombay. And um, when I was going around them, at least eight of them died on the mountain of Odima or heart problems. And others, um, about two thirds of them, were unable to make the circle to circle the mountain, and were coming back very sad and oppressed. As you circle the mountain, your karma is supposed your supposed to be um, more and more um, close to uh, casting off um, your mundane life and reaching uh, a, a kind of epiphany. As uh, we'd say in the West, mm-hmm. um, and those who didn't make it were coming round, as it were, with their karma being rewound the long way, um, and they looked terribly depressed and sad. Some of them on horseback, but um, it's uh, it's a very tough mountain, and if you're not used to that sort of uh, altitude um, and just used to an office job somewhere down in India, um, it's very hard. It was slightly unscrupulous, I think, what the um, Indian tour operators were offering. They weren't expecting it. They would fly um, up to Lhasa, probably um, from India, which pro- probably from Delhi to is a so, ascent of eight thousand feet in a few hours, and then you cross three days at fifteen thousand feet altitude to Kailash, and then again you got to climb the mountain. And no wonder that so many, so not, no, wonder so many couldn't do it.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, the extreme altitude being the, 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 the primary danger here. Um, yeah, and, that was the killer. And so Thank what? You. What about what about the 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 pilgrimage itself? The path itself. Um, I imagine at that altitude, there's practically no vegetation. It's just rocks and water and snow and wind.
1: That's right. There's very little. There's very little shelter. Um, it's very stony, uh, there are very small monasteries around the mountain, about six of them, but they're tiny. Um, they might give um, hospitality to pilgrims, um, they might be too full of pilgrims, but usually only two or three monks in each one and very poor. The um, the, the mountain itself has never been climbed, um, it's too sacred and um, the uh, Tibetan authorities um, refuse um, refuse that it should ever be climbed. And so, although one or two mountaineers, nice was one, have tried to get permission to climb it, um, it's been uh, that the people nearby um, would, I think, threaten anybody that attempted that. So it remains solitary. And Shiva, indeed, is supposed to be um, eternally contemplating on the summit of the mountain.
0: It's mm. interesting. Uh, in, in these monasteries that you mentioned, are these are, I'm assuming, primarily Tibetan Buddhist monasteries.
1: Yes, they're all Tibetan.
0: Okay, and and were were they the monasteries in which you stayed, or did you camp? How did that work?
1: Um, I camped. I was with a Sherpa um, and a horseman for a while, and we we camped. Uh, it was not possible at really it to.
0: To stay in the monasteries, usually. I see. Wow. so I, I was looking at the the Cora map, the the pilgrimage map around the mountain, and some are suggesting that you know this is a, a pilgrimage that can be done in in maybe three days. And mm-hmm. I'm a lowlander. You know, I'm in Florida, and <laughs> my elevation's like a hundred feet above sea level. And I'm looking at some of these uh, elevation numbers here, like the the. Uh, Dom La Pass, like mm-hmm. uh, eighteen thousand feet or five over five thousand five hundred meters, right? Just extreme yep. altitude yep. where you know o- oxygen level at that time at that height is probably half of that at sea level. Um, so it's kind of hard to imagine yep. what what that would be like. Um, is it something as, as someone who did the Korah, Is this something that you know, deflates the ego. Does it? Is, is it so difficult that it's deflating, or at that height, does it give you a sense of your euphoria?
1: Um, it it um, it's terribly hard because you can't. At least I found I couldn't walk for more than a few paces when we were up at the Dolma Pass, and then you just stop and have to cling to a rock and gasp for breath. Wow! And finally when you reach the top, there's a sense of triumph. Um, To uh, Hindu and Buddhist pilgrims, it's a kind of um, a a very heady experience, literally a casting off of sin. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a a feeling of great victory and triumph when they get to the top. But even the Tibetans can be quite exhausted. And my Sherpa, who was Nepalese, had altitude sickness. Um, which I, for some reason, didn't. You never know when it's going to hit you. But there was certainly a, a, a sense of otherworldliness, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, were, you felt that you were somewhere um, that was uh, out of uh, out of any ordinary experience.
0: That's interesting um, that your guides sensed altitude sickness, uh, but you didn't, and some of the other in, um, Hindu uh pilgrims did and i wonder if you know your preparation or your route into tibet helped with the altitude you acclimatized to the altitude gradually instead of just flying into lhasa and taking a, a jeep out west of oh, yeah. kailash
1: for anybody who's planning such a journey it's almost essential i think i um i flew to kathmandu and then took a little um, a little plane to a place called Simikot in the in the himalaya so I was already a little way up and then for about a week I was trekking up the Kanali valley which is very beautiful there there are trees gorgeous hornbeams and firs and you hear cuckoos and woodpeckers mm. and it's absolutely beautiful and you can stay with the Nepalese villagers along the way who are very hospitable and um, so, I bit by bit had become acclimatized. It was only in the last three or four thousand feet, um, going up from the foot of the mountain, that I I really began to labour.
0: Mm. That's incredible, and 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 um, so it, was that the primary reason why you you trekked in from from the south? It
1: was part of the journey. Um, it was the um, unusually beautiful. Um, the canal is a, a tributary of the Ganges. And um, I, I wanted to witness that as well, and see how the river moved um, up um, or away from the mountain, just of the experience of following it. And for lifting out of that sort of dense Indian, really Himalayan vegetation to the barrenness of Tibet, but the clarity of Tibet to the, the pristine air, um, the, the thin, the thin atmosphere um, was very compelling and strange to suddenly go from one to the other, as it were, it seemed to go from the tropical to the Alpine almost.
0: Mm. You mentioned in your book, um, some earlier writers like Charles Allen um, who ventured into, uh, you know, this region of the world and, and they themselves kind of chart their attempts to enter into Tibet and, Gosh, what is that, early 20th century that they're writing? And, uh, you know, that they're, they're discussing the difficulty, the political difficulty, uh, social difficulty of getting there to say nothing about the altitude. And in your book, you mention the, the need of having to meet with some other British trekkers or, or travelers um, in Tibet to be part of like a group.
1: That's right. Um, yeah, individuals on your own the lone traveler um, becomes suspicious and they don't allow it, they weren't then and still aren't allowing you in, um, the Tibetan, um, basically the Chinese um, authorities. So you have to go in a group. Um, So I organized a meet with a a British group um, on the border between Nepal and Tibet and I crossed over with them and for a little while went by in a land river with them um, until um, we got to the base of the mountain, which is not far over the border. But that was an obligation. The Chinese wanted to make you feel, wanted to be sure that you were part of a larger group.
0: Yeah. So why did you want to undertake such a such a trek? Oh, that's a... Usually for
1: me, it's been... Um, a, quite an impersonal, in a way, fascination with the part of the world, Um, usually a part that I don't understand, maybe the part that I'm um, afraid of even. Um, Most of my traveling has been in Central Asia, in Russia, um, China, the sort of lands we've been brought up to fear in the West or that my generation was brought up to fear. But this journey was rather different um, because it was in part a reaction to a mourning um, to the death of my mother and of my whole family, had gone. I had a small passage that I could read you, which um, gives probably a better sense of it than um, than I could in rather blunderingly talk about it. Okay. Um, I'll read you this passage. It's about a couple of minutes long.
0: Very good. So that, Excellent.
1: My, my Sherpa asks me, he said, Why on earth are you doing this, traveling alone? Mm-hmm. I say, I'm doing this on account of the dead. Sometimes journeys begin long before their first step is taken. Mine without my knowing starts not long ago in a hospital ward as the last of my family dies. There's nothing strange in this, the state of being alone. The death of parents may bring resigned sadness, even a guilty freedom. Instead, I need to leave a sign of that passage. My mother died just now, it seems, not in the way she wished. My father before her, my sister before that, at the age of 21. Time is unsteady here. Sometimes I am a boy again, trying to grasp the words, never, never again. Humans, it is said, cannot comprehend eternity in time or space. We are better equipped to register the distance spanned by a village drumbeat, the sheerness of never again. Is beyond us. The Sherpas' eyes stay mute on me, puzzled. Solitude here is unsought peril. I joke. Nobody's fool enough to travel with me. It is already evening. Our feet grate over the stones. You cannot walk out your grief, I know, or absolve yourself of your survival, or bring anyone back. You are left with a desire only that things not be as they are. So you choose somewhere meaningful on the earth's surface as if planning a secular pilgrimage. Yet the meaning is not your own. Then you go on a journey, it's my profession after all, walking to a place beyond your own history, to the sound of the river flowing the other way. In the end, you come to rest as a mountain that is holy to others. To ask of a journey why, is to hear only my own silence. It's the wrong question, although there seems no other. Am I harrowing myself because the world is mortal? Whose pain am I purging? Not theirs. An old Tibetan monk tells me the soul has no memory. The dead do not feel their past. Meanwhile, the sun is setting with a perverse radiance behind us.
0: Just a quick note and we'll get right back to the episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app, or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com/support. We're recording this in late 2020, right? A, a year in which we've seen a lot of loss and unrest, and and death, and frankly, you know, just to top it off. We've recently, just recently, learned about, you know, your friend and beloved travel writer Jan Morris's death. Yes. And it's a, a difficult year, and you know, this account of that you've undertaken um, seems even more, uh, you know, relevant to reflect on on what we have and you know what we might not have uh, soon. It makes it even more. Uh, relevant, I think, and, and and very impactful. Not to get on a side uh, rant, but a uh, side uh, topic. But you've recently um, published in, I think, the Telegraph, um, a little um, tribute to, to to Jan Morris. And I didn't prepare you for this. I didn't ask you um, if you would talk about this. But given the opportunity, is there something that you would like to 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 say? A memory about about Jan Morris um, and her life and her legacy.
1: There's an awful lot I could say about her. She was such a remarkable person and so uh, life-affirming. Um, she was I- immediately engaging and, and lovable. Um, of course, people talk a lot about her book Conundrum and about her being a very early um, transgender um, patient. And um, I never knew her until after she had become a woman. Um, she, when, I, when she first came to see me, um, I think she was wishing to see people who had never known her as a man, who would accept her as a woman. And she simply turned up at my home and um, there was a cleaner downstairs who came, came up to me in my study. And Jan was quite unannounced. And she said, There's a person to see you downstairs. She was obviously a little um, confused by Jan. And Jan um, was entirely at ease um, already with talking about her operation. I said, What have you been doing recently? I assumed that Jan was a pseudonym and that she was, uh, Old James rather, was a pseudonym and she had been a woman all along and was just, I had just made a mistake. But when I asked her what she'd been doing recently, she said, Oh, I've been having a sex change. And I didn't quite know what to say to that. I didn't know what you do. You know. I haven't had mine this year. But she put me um, absolutely at ease. Um, and thereafter, always talked about it with a complete and engaging frankness. Um, and I loved her for that. She, was, um, she, she had that sort of ease of communication to talk to that she had in the books. Um, and in particular, essays on cities which I loved. She had that uncanny, um, uh, uncanny talent for in a few days, just a few days in a city, she would, as it were, pluck out its heart. She would feel what really made it distinctive um, Mm -hmm. and, and write it. Uh, She was, she was altogether remarkable and a lovely friend.
0: Mm -hmm. Many, in my opinion, many, many good travel books rise above uh, a mere travelogue, right? They're not just about this is what I saw and this is what I did, but they have uh, an app. They need that, of course, to be a travel book. But in my opinion, the good ones or the modern ones are crafted in such a way that they have a story and a plot and this emotional engagement to story or place. You know, some of Jan Morris's books do that. And To a Mountain in Tibet does that as well. It's not just a travelogue of you going on a pilgrimage but it's about an an emotional connection to place and many travel books travel logs don't have that so what what is it that apart from that if there is anything apart from that what do you think makes a a good travel book
1: oh that's hard um it has nothing i think to do with the uh, the difficulty of the journey necessarily Mm -hmm. um or uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a poor traveller can do the most ambitious journey um, but won't write about it well and it won't be interesting. And a good one like Jan can go to the most humdrum, apparently, place or the most commonly visited place and make it sparkle. Mm. Uh, so it, it's it's complex. I mean, it has to depend upon the character and talents of the traveller um, that. that Um, they're interesting. I mean, you're travelling. I mean, travel writing is unique in this way, that you are travelling with a person, um, which is the author. And if the author's not interesting, um, or perhaps attractive, um, reasonably at any rate, um, or at any rate, characterful and arresting, then um, what he or she sees and writes about um, won't be interesting either. Um, I think... Uh, the modern travel book as opposed to the very earlier say the 19th century ones which were true feats of explanation the modern travel book has to have that that extra facet to it or you wouldn't say really an extra facet just as the, the quality um of somebody that you want to listen to and travel with
0: mm-hmm. yeah I don't... You're, you're reminding me now of uh, Eric Newby's work <laughs> and he's someone that I would like to travel with. Oh, he, he just gets in so many uh, kind of an interesting and uh, ridiculous situations that, you know, it's going to be an adventure even if he's going across town. Um, yes. Yeah. As someone who's worked in travel writing and in the publishing world uh, so closely over the past, what, 50 years, where, mm-hmm. where, where do you see travel riding going after this pandemic is is all said and done if it and is the
1: pandemic it's going to make a great difference it's going to give people of course um a nostalgia for traveling and perhaps a longing to travel in the future um i don't think it's going to inhibit people one way or another um it'll much more likely i think that people will um want to experience the wider world, having been locked up in that own for so long. I certainly feel that myself. Mm. As for the kinds of books that are likely to be published in the future, the kinds of travel books, I think increasingly the genre is moving um, certainly away from the exploratory travel book, or even perhaps the kind of travel book that I write, um, which is... Um, maybe geographically ambitious. Um, There have been a number of travel books published in in England, and I think probably in the States, in the last years, which have been um, unusual, sort of tangential travel books, you might say, somebody following um, a certain um, fascination with um, one thing, whether it's a, a... a bird, maybe. Um, there's one which is an um, interesting study of, the, of an arctic owl um, that I read recently. And another one um, which is about um, tracking pianos through Siberia. Um, it's a beautiful book. And um, it's quite sort of eccentric sounding. Um, and then the, there's that those travel books that are closely linked to nature writing. Um, Robert McFarlane, of course, to, comes to mind, who's the best known in this country, but there are others. Um, and so travel books, I think, have diversified, um, to put it in a nutshell now, in a way that before they tended to run to a, to a, a more, um, a more kind of predictable mould,
0: Mm-hmm. That's that's it's fascinating what you're referring to here in these recent travel books about the, the lost p- pianos of Siberia, for example, that book. Um, and this reminds me of, in, in travel writing, kind of like the the MacGuffin, right? Having that initial spark or that initial object after which, the, you know, the subject is chasing. And It reminds me of the um, Bruce Chatwin. Brontosaurus skin, you know. Of course, that leads him on his quest, and it's virtually forgotten throughout throughout the book. But this is, I guess, an interesting way to approach uh, travel. Um, Dan Richards uh, recently um, traveled around the world in in search for kind of um, desolate spaces, um, outposts. That's the title of his book. So that's interesting. um, That framework um what what about you what uh what are you working on i'd me- you mentioned somewhere um after the publication of your last novel that you're eyeing the amor river in asia so should we expect uh, a new travel book
1: yes i i've done the traveling fortunately I finished it long before the virus took hold um it's the tenth longest river in the world but nobody's heard of it hardly <laughs> um it's uh it For a good thousand miles, it's the border between Russia and China, Um, but it rises in Mongolia, goes through South Siberia, and eventually flows into just north of the Sea of Japan. Um, So it's a a giant river, but so so distant and so far out of our normal consciousnesses in the West um, that it's almost unknown. But it's fascinating, of course, fascinating, perhaps above all, for the fact that the Chinese and the Russians are facing us, facing one another across the river, and it's, um, it's fraught because of that. There's a tension. Um, the Chinese believe that the Russians stole the river from them in the 19th century, hmm. and they haven't gotten it. Uh, so there's a great deal of political interest, unusually for my sort of writing there, and um, an awful lot of other kinds of interest too. But I've finished the book. It's been published in September. Um, who knows um, how it will um, be received now. Um, I, we're hoping that things like literary festivals, which are very important in England, um, would have returned by then, and bookshops may have returned to normal too. But well, we'll see.
0: Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of writers speak uh, virtually virtually, uh, you know, to promote to promote their books or attend uh, festivals virtually, although you know that face to face connection is so so necessary in many cases. We hope it's uh, back yeah. to normal by the time your new book comes out.
1: I do, do. and the face to face connection is so important, even in travel writing. You know, you can imagine that you can see places or experience their people online in some way um, or remotely. But you can't. It's not the same, and the place is not the same. The people aren't the same. You need to be there with them.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, I I hope we can talk again when your new book comes out. I'd be happy to uh, to talk with you about that if if you're if you're up for it. Um, thanks,
1: Jeremy, I hope I'll, I'll be here.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the, the show to talk to me today.
1: Not at all. Thank you.
0: You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.